Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio, back with the great Bill Whittle, uh, currently fresh off his audition for Princess Leia, as you can see from the headphones, uh, for the new Star Wars, Star Wars, The Force I'm Awakens. More of, fan, more of a fanboy, really. I left my slave uh, uh, bikini outfit in the back room. I didn't want to shock people. <laughs> well, that will be available to subscribers only, I'm sure. And, of course, we've, uh, we had a chat once before where the best-reviewed aspect of our conversation was the Red Sibby Cup, which both people said both reminded them of and, and gave them memories of the memories they didn't have in college. So, uh, well, I'll, tell you that it, I'll tell you that it's tea, but uh, when I was in college, um, when I went back to school, I was uh, back at the University of Florida, and uh, head coach at the time was Steve Spurrier, and he went to a, to a night you know, to a bar after games, and a lot of times he had a had a system with the guys in the bar where they would give him a Pepsi can, but they'd fill it full of beer. So we'll just say it's tea, <laughs> but we'll pretend we'll pretend what's what's actually there. We'll we'll look at whether the quality goes up or down, where the bell curve goes over uh, the course of the conversation. You know what I hate about you sons of bitches. <laughs> When the face plant in the webcam happens, we'll generally consider the interview to be over. So you can find uh, Bill Whittle stuff at BillWhittle.com, and uh, you can enjoy his uh, incredible video editing montage skills and jaw-dropping backgrounds uh, at BillWhittle.com and his uh, trenchant and very eloquent and very witty commentary. I just watched your Tomorrowland review, uh, and it encapsulated most of the secret bile that I was excreting while watching the movie with my daughter. <laughs> I, was um, I, don't, I, don't, I like my programming to be more subtle. I don't like feel that people are typing on the socialist keyboard of my brain with a mallet. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what they do. I mean, that's that's what they do. So we are going to chat a little bit about um, well, some of the events that have been occurring uh, around the world. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the point that you made recently, uh, and I think we all feel that same sense of sort of cold dread uh, when you hear about some gruesome terrorist attack in the world. Um, we don't generally think those damn Buddhists or, as you pointed out, those uh, maybe the Lutherans had one too many lattes and yeah. went a little crazy. Uh, that there does appear to be a sort of hard forming up what uh, is referred to as clash of a civilization, which is something we kind of desperately want to avoid. But if the fight is on, it needs to be acknowledged. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, I think um, I think I saw Alan West say something about that, where uh, he basically said, uh, you know, the, America is not at war with Islam, but Islam has been at war with America. And I think you can date it to either 1979 with the takeover of the Iranian embassy or to 750, whatever the year was when the religion got started. You know, let's just start with the obvious. The the Crusades have been so demonized by the left. You know, is this is this is Christianity? This is it's any kind of religion just has to go down. Uh, so um, Christianity is this brutal religion, and they went over there and just slaughtered these innocent Muslims just just for the fun of it. Most people today don't have the historical background to understand that the Crusades was a counterattack. That that Islam had conquered all of Southern Europe. They owned the entire Iberian Peninsula. They had Spain, virtually all of uh, Portugal, and they were stopped. I think it was Charles Mal- Charles Martel um, in the the uh, at the gates of Vienna, basically. I mean, they were they had conquered almost all of Southern Europe, and the Crusades were a counterattack against this religion. So when people say this is a lot Islamophobic or you're picking on Islam or signaling signaling sig singling Islam out, you know, my response is, hey, Islam is at war with America, Islam is at war with Germany, Islam is at war with France, Islam is at at war with Britain, they're at war with Belgium, they're at war with India in the Kashmir, they're at war with the Chinese, with the Uyghurs, they're at war with animus in Africa, they're at war with with Buddhists in, in, in Asia, they're at war with everybody all the time. And when you really understand the religion, Stefan, you know, as written, you realize that they've divided the world into two two parts: the Dar al Islam, uh, which is the House of Islam, and the the uh, which which means submission. By the way, Islam doesn't mean peace; it means submission, and the House of War. And so, 
the thing I think that the, the, the foundational thing we have to start with, and, and we can't get anywhere if we don't start here, is that it is not – the terrorists are not hijacking the religion. The terrorists – are doing what the religion commands them to. It's the moderates who are technically the apostates. It's the moderates who are the one who've gone off the book. The Quran is a is a conquest manual. Now the the challenge always, which people tend to trip over, is that when talking about a set of beliefs, mm-hmm. we of course are not describing every individual who claims some adherence to those beliefs, and that's the challenge. Because this, I know many nice Muslims, I'm sure you do, I do as well, but the, the challenge is the set of beliefs. And Correct. the criticism of the set of beliefs is that which really needs to be undertaken. And these ancient texts have been, of course, a curse, not just of the Eastern world, but um, I would argue up until the Reformation, the Western world suffered from it as well. Something, mm-hmm. some, some standard of modernity needs to insert itself between the ancient texts and modern behavior. And I would say that the Lutheran Revolution, uh, you know, the Thirty Years' War, and then the separation of church and state and the, exactly. the fostering of individual conscience that happened uh, in the post-Reformation era in the West was when the sort of the wedge of modernity came between the ancient texts and modern people. The Reformation within the Islamic world uh, remains a potential future uh, opportunity, but at the moment does not seem to be occurring. And I would talk about the moderate Muslims with regards to that, because it's certainly not going to come from the extremists, and it's certainly not going to come from those who've left the religion. It is the moderate Muslims who need to take on the extremist Muslims, I don't think can come from outside, in the same way that some of the more brutal excesses, uh, the indulgence and so on of the Catholic Church in the later Dark Ages and early Middle Ages, needed to be taken on by men of conscience like Martin Luther. Uh, and that caused a lot of schisms, it caused a lot of problems, but it also opened up the airway to get modern ideas in, like uh, individual conscience, the freedom to come and go through religion, separation of church and state, and the resulting freedom of speech. And unless you get that wedge of modernity into the ancient texts, I just don't see how there can be anything other than this photocopying of brutal medievalism. Well, there's a lot to answer there. That's a that's a profoundly good point. Um, I think I would start by saying that, you know, the huge majority of Muslims, and this isn't just lip service, you know, a lot of times you'll hear conservatives start start by saying this and, and people just think it's lip service. It's not lip service. This is the point. If we're going to fight, if we're going to fight uh, Islam in its seventh century form and we lose our soul doing it, then we lose. So it it is the enormous majority of Muslims who actually are reformed Muslims. There is no, there has been no reformation in Islam in the way that there was in terms of an actual theological uh, conversion as there was in Christianity. But the fact that the fact that you know eight million Muslims live in America without you know chopping people's heads off, uh, surrounded by infidels, is a sign that they are all reformed Muslims. They are they are reformed Muslims. I think the reason that the left. Is has to be fought, as you were saying. You know, I know, I, I know many nice Muslims. That's swell. I, I, I do too. The problem is when you're fighting Nazi Germany, and you can s- sit here in 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 America in Des Moines, Iowa, and say, I know many fine German Americans. That's great, but that doesn't mean we don't fight Nazi Germany, and it doesn't mean that we have to kill all of the Germans in America in order to do it. Um, the point I made in this last afterburner is this: the middle is the middle because. It's not a question of intelligence or anything. It's just ordinary people living ordinary lives, and they're not theolog- theologically uh, inventive, and they're not political leaders. That's good and appropriate. The problem is this. If you have 
a compelling narrative on one side and a compelling narrative on the other, people will choose. And here in America, at least to some degree, we still have a compelling narrative. Everybody here is assimilated. If you raise your right hand, you come in legally, raise your right hand, you take the oath of citizenship, you're as American as somebody who got off the Mayflower. That's the power of the American vision. And so that is a compelling narrative that keeps most Muslims in America very moderate. But in, in Europe, there is no Europe. Europe not only doesn't have any national identity anymore, they have a death wish and there's no question about it and there's no other word for it. When Sweden becomes the rape capital of the world and the response of the Swedish government is to say, we're not going to report that these were Muslims and, by the way, ladies, you may not want to dress so provocatively and you should probably avoid these neighborhoods in your own country and you probably should travel in groups, that's a surrender. And when it turns out that... Um, when it turns out that, uh, uh, you know, I think it's just one case, but it's a it's a bellwether that a, a Christian um, bishop is saying we need to take down the crosses in our in our rec room or something in our church because it'll offend, uh, you know, Muslim. What does that tell the middle? So the point I'm trying to make is, the middle will go in the in the path of least resistance. They'll go wherever the push is. And and, and again, Nazi Germany is a great example. I think that the the Nazi Party tops hit 7% of the population in terms of actual Nazi party members. In the 1920s and 30s, they were a laughing stock. They never pulled more than 50%. I think their highest number is probably around 46% or something. But when they came to power, when Hindenburg made Hitler chancellor, three or four years later at a plebiscite, they pulled 98, 99%. The middle was radicalized because there was no counter narrative. The Nazis suppressed the um, communist narrative and the Weimar Republic's narrative didn't have a narrative. They, they were blame for everything. So this is the point I think we need to make. Here's radical Islam pushing the moderates. And if there's nothing else here, there's not a counter story, they're going to push themselves all the way to the radicals. We've got to have a better story. And we do. We still fight for it here in America, but I don't see, well, I almost said I don't see any sign of it in Europe, but things are changing really, really, really fast over there, aren't they? I uh, I think so. Uh, there's an old Rudyard Kipling poem about the degree to which uh, Anglo-Saxon culture is nice until it's not. And uh, that, that level of politeness is kind of confusing to the Can world. Can I just and interject I call, call... one thing? Just, yeah, yeah. just on that one point, I'm so sorry to interrupt you because I will forget this. There was a stand-up comedian talking about Anglo-Saxon culture being nice until it's not. There was a, it was, it was a, a, an American, uh, but he was a recent immigrant, uh, stand-up comedian. He says, you really don't want to piss America off too much because if you piss them off, they're not going to come and drop 10,000 bombs on you. They're going to drop two bombs. And I thought, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. world hasn't seen America angry since August of 1945. Not fully angry. No, and uh, certainly uh, the, the conciliatory aspect of the Treaty of Versailles after the First World War, where everybody was supposed to just kind of go home, some reparations, and Germany was not invaded, and Germany was not bombed. Uh, that all changed in the Second World War, uh, where Germany was basically reduced to a giant smoking crater and has been largely meek as a lamb, perhaps a little too much uh, ever too since. Much. And the same thing with Japan as well. Japan was originally pretty hysterical in this kamikaze uh, attacks and so on. And then, you know, uh, you, you firestorm Tokyo and drop two atomic bombs. And uh, next thing you know, uh, you know, the, the only thing they're competing with you is uh, which who can make the better car and their imperialism seems to have gone right out of them. You'd like to think that society doesn't have to get to giant nuclear shadows uh, of hundreds of thousands of people up against the wall in order to learn that there's a better way than aggression to solve That'd problems. Nice. But it seems like we're doomed to be a little bit in that loop, at least at the moment. Well, let's look at, you know, because we are talking about. There's no question that this is the challenge of the age. Communism was the challenge of the second half of the uh, 20th century. Uh, fascism was, uh, and Nazism was the challenge of the first half. And 
this is the challenge of this century. So I think it wouldn't do us any harm to take a look at what our big victories have been in the past. And I think Japan and Germany provide profoundly good examples of the same dynamic. In order to in order to win, in order to win, you have to make the you have to make the enemy realize that it is preferable to surrender than to keep on fighting. You may not like the sound of it, but that's basically it. U.S. Grant basically said, "I want to get all the fighting done now, so we can so we can you know shake hands and be friends." It's true, uh, and. Sherman said, war is cruelty, you cannot refine it. And, and he also thought that a sharp, fast victory is better than this endless 50-year war of attrition. So let's look at Germany and Japan. Germany and Japan, the formula is, and I don't think the formula has ever really been tried before, to be honest with you, because of the just the moral magnificence of America after World War II. The the formula is you must eliminate their their radicals. you got to just kill them in battle. you, you just got to kill SS guys, and you got to kill kamikaze pilots. You have to kill the fire-breathing radicals who are going to go down to the last man, because they're going to go down to the last man. And then you have to make the civilian population understand that this punishment is going to continue until they surrender. And then they surrender, and they expect that this is where the magic happens. Both the Germans, but especially the Japanese, were convinced that surrender meant the rape of all their women, the, the massacre of all their men, the execution of all their children. They, they expected that we were going to do to them what they had done to the Chinese. And the magic happens when when that surrender when that actual genuine surrender takes place and then 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 the magnanimity comes through because when you deal with fascist uh, or nazi germany and and um imperial uh, militaristic japan you're dealing with two warlike cultures that only understand dominance submission that's all they, they're not a cooperative society cooperation is weakness to them they've got to be defeated they've got to feel that boot on their neck they got to realize that this is a bigger dog than they are and then they submit and and the same with it's the same with this form of Islam. And if we as long as we keep pussyfooting footing around with these guys, they're going to assume that we do not have the will. And this is one thing that needs to be said again and again and again and again and again. Our failure against this this scourge of world terrorism is not a failure of intelligence. It's not a failure of weaponry. It's not a failure of of ability or capability. It's a failure of will. And when they see how powerful we are and we don't use that power, what does that tell them? And most importantly, what does that tell the moderates? Well, there's an old, um, <clears throat> I think it was Churchill who said about the Germans uh, that they're either at your feet or they're at your throat. There's not, line ever. not a whole line in the middle. Now, this question of escalation has been turned round and round in my brain. I don't have a good answer. And I certainly have studied a lot of military history, but I'm certainly no military strategist, Bill. But... Here's the challenge or, or the opportunity that I see. So there are some arguments. Of course, there are expansionist elements to the uh, Islamic theology, no question. But for a couple of hundred years, it was relatively dormant, uh, this sort of jihadi. Now, it partly could be due to the technological and market-based superiority of the West, military power and so on, and the fact that the West was out there throwing its weight around trying to civilize the world in a I guess, in hindsight, somewhat mistaken ability to believe that everybody could be like the West. But I wonder the degree to which simply withdrawing might not be an option, because, of course, the Soviet Union and, and um, uh, communist China and socialist India were not reformed through invasion, but were reformed by people staying out and letting the systems collapse of their own accord. 
And I just wonder the degree to which, and I think this is a point I made in a video I put out yesterday, like, for God's sakes, we're either at war or we're not. That's exactly Like this, it. this, like, I don't have a beekeeper suit. I'm, I'm allergic to bee stings, but I'm out there poking the nest. I mean, one yeah. or the other, like either yeah. call in an airstrike and yeah. get rid of what the bees the or stay away from the bees. This, this idea that we're in there just annoying the hell out of everyone with a potential fifth column in our own country. What, like, you could not be more, more suicidal than that. No, it's the worst possible path. Half war is the worst possible path. Boy, there's again, there's so much to say here. First of all, you're right. Islam almost disappeared off the face of the earth. It was a large amount of money was put when, when Saudi oil started to started to make some real cash, when that started to flow, basically Western money and American money started to flow into Saudi Arabia and the Wahhabi cult started to inculcate these these madrasas. We basically paid for this Islamic resurgence because Islam was almost out the door. And there's something that's really important that, that most people forget, and I think they really need to be reminded of it. It may be too late now. I'm not suggesting that this is something we can go back to. But back in the 50s and 60s, Kabul looked like Beirut before. I mean, Beirut used to be the, the it used to be it was Monaco. It, it was, it was, you know, it was incredible. And, and I've seen photographs of Kabul with women in, in, in short skirts and, and they're, you know, trees. Being doctors, and everything. They're being lawyers. Yeah, they spectacular. There's a, there's a, I saw online once it was a travel brochure for Baghdad and it had a, like a 707 and people in suits and ties. It actually was working until we started to fund these radicals. And, you know, the rest is, really awful alternate history. We need to go back in time and, and shoot a dinosaur or something because we're in the alternate history now. We're in the bad history. We got to get rid of this, get back to, to where we can go. But let's, let's just address this idea of leaving them alone. Um, you could make a case, and I think, it, I think it would have been a good case, and it was really the case really right up until World War II. You know, a lot of Brits uh, who hate America say, well, you know, you guys didn't come in and save us, basically. That's in a nutshell what they say. You know, at the beginning of World War II, America had the 16th largest uh, army in the world. We were behind Portugal in terms of the amount of guys that we had. It's not a joke. And when we started training, they had to use sticks because we didn't have rifles for training. So that idea of isolationism is you could make the case for it when the threat consists of um, battleships, uh, huge, massive armies, uh, you know, air fleets. Churchill watched the Germans arm over a 10-year period and scream bloody murder the whole time. So he had some warning. We live in a world now where forget the spectacular attacks. You know, the thing that, that I'm most concerned about is that these guys are going to wake up to the fact that 50 guys with AK-47s go to 50 American malls on Black Friday. And if you remember the damage that the two DC snipers did, those two Muslims, when they were just randomly shooting, what, seven, eight people at, at yeah. you know, while they were getting gas, it paralyzed the Northeast. People wouldn't leave their homes. So this business of we're going to we can leave them alone is not it. I think I think we have a twofold. Well, we have a threefold thing. First of all, we need to go over there and just bomb the living daylights out of their command structure. They have vehicles. They have territory. They have bunkers. I've been to the Joint Operations Center at CENTCOM. Those guys don't leave their houses day or night without us knowing it. We just heard just a couple of days ago that Obama's vetoed 75 percent of the total airstrikes against ISIS. Seventy five percent of them. That's what the combat pilots say. And so gave them 45 minutes warning that yeah. he was going to bomb yeah. them. What, what does that say? What does that say? By the way, Johnson did the same thing in Vietnam. You know, the reason Vietnam was an 11-year war instead of a one-year war was because Johnson basically said, well, we're going to bomb the daylights out of them, and then we're going to stop for six months, and then we're going to come in on the same routes at the same altitude on the same time of the day, and, and American pilots coming off the Yankee Station carriers are flying over Haiphong Harbor. They're looking down, literally looking down over their, over their shoulders, and they're unloading the SAM missiles that are going to shoot them down and kill them, and they're not allowed to touch them. So are we in the war or are we not? 
right? I think that's your larger point. And look, I thought 9-11 to me, Stefan, was like flipping a coin that landed on its edge. It was like 50% of the country realized what was going on and still realized what's going on. And the other 50% got almost there and just couldn't get past their own multiculturalism. Okay. Now, what do you think it's like for the, the, the crazy, the crazy religious extremists out there in the Middle East that on their holy land, the United States has masses of troops in Saudi Arabia? That was the big complaint of bin Laden. And I can't for yes. the life of me see what a particular, oh, maybe the price of oil has gone up a little bit. Well, you know, terrorism is pretty expensive too. So I don't think that would have been a huge problem. What is the point of having all of this military presence in the Middle East? And also, what's the point of selling all of this military hardware? You know, when you when you look at a picture of a conflict in Syria and you see an American-made missile hitting an American-made truck it's from one side crazy. to the other, this just seems completely deranged to me. And to, 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 to train and to arm up and to fund uh, all of these people who are supposed to be allies who can turn on a dime and then turn against, as happened with, of course, Saddam Hussein, as happened with al-Qaeda, as happened with ISIS, mm -hmm. uh, Bashar, even, I mean... This is just, it seems to me, a completely incomprehensible, blindfolded, to knock the table over of the chessboard and say you've won kind of approach. It seems there's no coherence whatsoever. And we used to be pretty good at fighting. I mean, to our detriment as a culture, we are pretty good at fighting. And it just seems like we're just some punch dry. It's like it's going from Muhammad Ali in his prime to Muhammad Ali now. It's just, it's completely bizarre to me how bad we've become at all of this. You either go in or you go out. But this, it's just crazy. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons that Hillary Clinton decided to put all her emails on a private server is because they're immune to freedom of information requests. And I thought most of that was due to the Clinton Foundation chicanery, and there's a lot of that there. But mainly it's because we were running guns to um, al-Qaeda. I mean, we had American airplanes flying cover for al-Qaeda. Do you hear what I just said? We're, we, are, we are helping arming and we are providing air cover for al-Qaeda against people that apparently are worse now. Because in all of this, you can take all of this back down to the, to the core thing, which is what I started with. If we don't identify the problem as this form of Islam, regardless of its – if we start talking about ISIS, al-Qaeda, uh, Saudi Arabia, and so on, we're going to be doing the same thing you're talking about where we're going we're to degrade this group by 6%. We're going you know, to degrade that group by 11%. But if we understand that the problem is this, is this radical and growing form of Islam, radical doesn't mean – um, I just can't make this point strongly enough. Radical doesn't mean hijacked religion. It's like, no, these people want that book. They want the book as the book is written. If we don't understand that psychologically and, and politically and militarily, then we're going to we're just going to bleed out. We, we when we talk about a war on terrorism, it's the war on terror. Terror is a military strategy. It's a, it's a weapon. It's like saying we're going to it's like going after Germany. It's like we're launching a war on tanks or we're launching a war on airplanes or a war on submarines. It makes no sense. I mean, terrorism is a is a is a weapon. And to say you're launching a war on a rifle is absurd. Who are we fighting? Why are we fighting them? And not only how do we beat them militarily, because, look, if we had the will, we beat anybody militarily. The question then becomes, what's the, what is the psychology? What's the psychology? What's the rationale? What's the, what's the reasoning? What's the moral underpinning of this campaign? And to me, it's the foundational Western belief, freedom of speech and freedom of religion. These things are death penalty items where Sharia exists. If you say something about the prophet that's not complimentary, you'll be killed. If you leave the Muslim religion, you'll be killed. This is not only different than the West, it's antithetical to Western 
philosophy, and especially in the United States, it's antithetical. So to the degree that they want to stay over there and kill their own people, I don't have any problem with that at all. I don't need to go over there and do that. But that's not the case. They are occupying Europe and they are trying to do the same. Some of them are in America. And of course, Stefan, the main thing we need to talk about is the reason things are so much worse in Europe than they are here so far, we're well on our way, is because of their socialist paradise, right? They have to import workers to keep the bottom of the pyramid Ponzi scheme of socialism alive. If the actual French, just as French as an example, because it's all of Europe, if the birth rate is declining and everybody gets cradle to grave benefits, you have to have more people at the bottom of that pyramid than at the top. So they've imported millions of people to keep their big socialist idea alive in their 35-hour work week or whatever, and their cradle to grave benefits, and this is the price they've paid for that laziness. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. So if we're going to... Let's get to wealth and state in a sec, because I just... So my concern, Bill, is that the degree to which we hammer them from outside is the degree to which they're going to kind of be able to avoid dealing with internal problems by focusing on an external enemy. You know, shields up, everyone on the bridge, we're all together banded against the outsiders. And I'm sort of thinking about the degree to which um, when societies lose that external enemy, the discontents tend to rise internally and can provoke reform. But as long as they have that external enemy, uh, reformers look like traitors. Yeah, how likely does that look to you? Um, one to ten? You know, In one decimals? Of th- one of the things that's... See, I think, again, you can't really have an intelligent conversation about fighting uh, this conflict until you understand, I think, the basics. So let's just talk about one, like a fundamental difference between Islam and, um, and Christianity, because this is... You may not say it's a Christian nation, but it's certainly built on Christian values. No, There's no question about that. So... Um, there's a fundamental difference between these two religions, uh, needless to say, and the fundamental difference between the two religions impacts whether or not this kind of reformation is possible. Islam basically is a religion of top-down authority where the ability to sin is simply taken off the board. There is no ability to sin. There's no alcohol. There's no dancing. Women are in a bag. There's no gambling. You're just you're controlled from the top down from the beginning. Christianity, on the other hand, says that um, that your virtue is internal, that you have to have an internal conscience and an internal uh, sense of virtue. And since the virtue is internal, basically, we can leave you alone. And if you want to go and I mean, look, Vegas is the living evidence that you can sin as much as you want to in the West. And you have, if, if you have strong religious beliefs, you'll pay for it later. But, I'd go with Washington, D.C., but I'll, I'll definitely yeah, 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 go yeah, with yeah, your, uh, you find your approach. Wretched uh, hive of scum and villainy. Uh, but but. <laughs> I think that's really I think that's really an important thing to understand because basically Christianity leaves you alone and and allows your virtue to be internal and Islam basically says no uh virtue is enforced by the by by the people with the sticks and so I think it's far less likely that this kind of thing is going to happen internally for Islam I think we come back to what we were talking about a minute ago and that is who can tell a better story I am uh, I'm all in favor of just smashing these guys with a hammer in, to the degree that we're talking about guys in, in trucks in Syria or whatever, you know, hurt them, make them pay, make them pay. But your point about, about the external enemy is a really good point, but you, you, you have to do one or the other, right? You either fight them or you don't. Well, we're, we're doing both, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, but you either fight them or you don't. And I don't think we have an option not to fight them. I think what's missing in all this is and I think this is the reason that we have this problem. Again, worse in Europe, better in America, but still across the board with the West. If we are not prepared to defend our civilization, not just militarily, but ethically and morally, if we're not prepared to trumpet it, 
then why would they possibly uh, stay moderates? Why forget even being moderate Muslims? Why wouldn't they simply just basically adhere to American constitutional law the way that that most of them do? We have to we have to tell that story. And if the West wants to live, it had better be prepared to defend itself and not just militarily. We need to be able to prepare to defend ourselves philosophically and ethically. And and Stefan, seriously, buddy, how hard is this? You know, I mean. This this is the greatest civilization in the history of the world, not just because of our material benefits, but because of our philosophy that produces these material benefits. And the fact that these that these people are coming here in such in such numbers and want to come here in such numbers is an indication. And I think the real threat is the real. I think the issue we have to face as as Americans now is if this religion is antithetical to American values as written. What seems to be the case, it was the case in Europe, and it seems to be the case in, like, uh, was it Hamtarek, that, that community in Michigan? When a Muslim population reaches a certain point, they start insisting on, on basically having their way. And so the question then becomes for American civil rights, do they have the right to issue the call to prayer five times a day over loudspeakers? These Polish uh, you know, immigrants from 100 years ago are saying, I'm trying to sit in my backyard, drink a beer, and my dog is barking every time these damn speakers come on. That doesn't seem like America to me. I think they've got a right to attend their mosques. Certainly they have that. There's no question they have that right. That's the First Amendment right. But at what point does this, does this spreading of a culture that's antithetical to Western values become toxic? Well, um, I think if we look at the political and religious beliefs of Islam, it is toxic to the degree with which there is fidelity to the text. That's it. And, and that, to me, is the great challenge. So you either get somebody who wants to impose Sharia law on you, or you get a hypocrite. I'm not sure that either one of those is number one in your list of people who you want uh, you know, growing in, in your community. I reluctantly agree. Yeah, that, that is the challenge. Uh, and the degree to which a minority is um, compliant with the majority dictates or the majority culture is deceptive. And the thing that frustrates me most about the West, and, and oh, you know, I, I don't know how to solve it other than keep doing what I'm doing, and maybe you yeah. keep doing what you're doing, and that is that the West is a very self-critical culture. It wasn't always and that way. No, it wasn't always that way for sure, but I think you could say sort of post-Renaissance, post-Enlightenment, you know, that, that famous quote often mistakenly attributed to Voltaire, I disagree with everything you say would defend you to the death your right to say it. The idea that the best uh, disinfectant is sunlight, that we must give as wide an exposure to bad ideas so people can see just how bad a set of ideas they are. Like I just had a guy on my show talking about the flat earth and it's like, yeah, come on, you know, let's, let's have it out. Let's, let's shine some yeah, sunlight exactly. on this, this corner. And this, this self-criticism of the West is why the West improves. And there's mm -hmm. a self-criticism implicit in the free market, which is that nothing is ever good enough. Let's keep improving. Uh, let's keep making things better. Science, democracy, with, and capitalism are three self-correcting systems, and the three of them together are what make the magic happen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's what makes lifespans over the age of 30 possible and all that. So there's this self-criticism and this um, shouldering of the improvement of society to collective debate that is completely antithetical to top-down uh, oligarchical religious dictatorships uh, where any free debate is, is antithetical to the ideology. Now, the West's capacity for self-criticism is its greatest strength and 
paradoxically, of course, its greatest weakness. Because then when you come at Western people and you say, well, slavery was bad, wasn't it? And you come at Western people and say, well, you know, there was exploitation of the third world. Well, to some degree, there was mercantilism. And, oh, colonialism was really bad. And remember how you didn't give votes to women for 40 years after you gave them to men? And, and we're, Western people are like, yeah, you know, that's right. Boy, that was some bad stuff. We really, <laughs> I mean, that's why we're better. But it gives us the apparent weakness in the eyes of, of people. Most people don't have real values that they follow that are internalized, at least outside the West, to some degree inside the West these days with all this postmodern relativistic uh, mm-hmm. looking at the world through the kaleidoscope of modern social justice warrior, broken prince lenses. Ah, I can't even finish that metaphor. Yeah, no, it shattered just like the view of the world. But since we lost any kind of moral imperative, we've become pathologically self-critical. Uh, and most people in the world will not look at who's right, they'll look at who's most certain. And that's a profound statement. That's, that's it in a nutshell. That's it in a nutshell. That's precisely right. Go on. Um, I I would would differ with you on this to say that yes, Western self-criticism is what's made the West so strong. There's no question about that. That's the essence of freedom of speech, marketplace of ideas and so on. But self self criticism and self hatred are two different things. And um, the self hatred I think, and it was Andrew Clavin who, who actually turned me on to this. I think the self-hatred is a result of the Holocaust, of, of, of World War II, of, of Nazi atrocities, primarily Nazi atrocities. When you listen to Germans today, I, I, I listened to one on one of your shows uh, just a couple of weeks ago, where you basically hear these people and they want to fight this. Because in, in Europe, in Germany, it's an invasion. There's no other word for it. They're tr- trashing the place. They're just destroying everything. It's an invasion. It's not the same as it is here. But I listened to you uh, interview this uh, German uh, viewer of yours, and it, it, I, I told you before the show last time, it just knocked the air out of me. He basically said, we want to fight back, but we don't trust ourselves. We don't trust ourselves because of their, their history. And I've seen German uh, politicians saying, no, we have to accept these people because of what we did uh, in, in Nazi Germany. And basically, it is a suicide wish. It's a suicide wish to atone for the crimes that virtually everybody in that society today are innocent of because they didn't commit them, right? I mean, modern Germans didn't commit these atrocities. The people, the actual Nazis are, are gone and, and they carry this burden with them. Um, and it's this self-hatred that is the end of the West. It's this self-loathing, this sense of, you know, oh, we did all these awful things and, you know, and it was well, true that the West did awful things, but you can't, but see, here's where we have to, this is where you have to fight the philosophical battle. It's true that, that Nazi Germany was a Western nation, but it's certainly not true that Nazism is a Western value as we understand the West today. The entire idea of the West today is exactly what you talked about, freedom, uh, cooperation, um, criticism. That's what we mean when we say the West. The Nazis weren't the West. The Nazis were authoritarian regime and, and they were defeated to create the West. Well, and there are very strong arguments that uh, you could make that says that, uh, that Europe moved ahead uh, from the sort of Middle Ages and the barbarism of the early Middle Age period, the Dark Age and the early Middle Ages. But Germany was somewhat exempted from that progress in that during the time of the greatest push forward of intellectual achievement in the West and the Enlightenment and so on, Germany was racked with 100 plus years of uh, brutal civil war and and religious conflicts and just monstrous, monstrous social dislocation. And they kind of missed the whole Western thing, which is one of the reasons why they became the first socialist state under Bismarck in the 1880s with unemployment insurance and Mm -hmm. old age pensions and why they were always skeptical of the free market and why their child rearing 
he remained extraordinarily brutal. I mean, Hitler himself was beaten regularly into of a coma, he was. So was which Stalin. was not that unusual. Yeah. So yeah, they so were kind Stalin. of a holdover from an earlier age in Europe, and that was part of the battle. And in some ways, you could make that analogy, as I think you referred to earlier, that when we're looking at medieval holdovers, formerly there was the socialism, uh, national socialism in Germany, and now there is uh, Islamic theologies of the more extreme kinds, which are medieval holdovers, uh, holdovers and need to be confronted. Uh, I obviously prefer the intellectual confrontation, but who knows where it's going to lead. But without the intellectual confrontation, I think any physical confrontation is going to result in a significant loss. I mean, one of the great tragedies of the Second World War, of course, in fighting national socialism, and if you look at the planks of the Nazi party, well, they're actually quite socialist. It was not an accident. Of course, the socialists who write history have to say Nazi rather than national socialist because they don't want the word associated. But then after the end of the Second World War, Britain, after fighting national socialism, adopted a lot of the platforms of the National Socialist Party, just like America, after fighting communism, has now enacted eight of the ten planks of the Communist Party. Without the intellectual battle, the blood is spent in vain. And that, I think, is, is why I'm hesitant about the military solution when we're still so fragmented and relativistic philosophically. Strangely enough, the military, at least the fighting military, not the uh, commander-in-chief and uh, certainly not the political generals that he's promoted while purging the actual fighting uh, generals, the military has the clearest moral uh, view of the entire situation. They don't have any question about it. Uh, Just one of the most appalling examples is that Green Beret was kicked out of the army because he beat up a guy who raped his son. And he said it's it's he's oh, this is war. in Afghanistan, right? The guy yeah, who was, was, uh, was in yeah. Afghanistan. He saw he saw this 10 year old boy being raped by his father or his relatives or something. And he went in there and beat this guy up and and Obama kicked him out of the Obama kicked him out of the military. Let's be clear about this. Right. Kicked him out of the military. Um, maybe it was maybe it was, you know, a discipline thing. And he was kicked out. of. The, I'm not going to say he ordered him out. But the point is. His position, the soldier's position was everybody knows I'm morally right to do this. And if I'm morally, if I'm not morally right, then who the hell are we and why are we fighting? Um, and he's act, he's absolutely right. The, the military war fighters have a very clear idea of what needs to be done, because unlike the rest of us over here, at least unlike those of us that don't actively go looking for it, they know what's going on. I talked to a, I have a friend who, uh, who works at CENTCOM and he's involved with the um, with the basically the ISIS suppression over there. And they have a lot of uh, predator drones on on target, and, and many of these are armed with a couple of Hellfire missiles, so they can pick and choose targets. And it's very, very carefully done, by the way, just as a quick aside. They don't just pull the trigger. There's all kinds of, you know, counter arguments and stuff. But in any event, he says, look, sometimes we, we the missiles are off the rail, and the, the surveillance drone is over the target, and we can't do anything except watch. We see women pulled out of... Um, we see women pulled out of their houses and gang raped in a parking lot. We see we see people beaten to death with tire irons because they're not, you know insufficiently modest. We see people stoned to death for being raped by their uncles and stuff, and they see it. They don't have any uh, moral confusion about it, and I think that's why American Sniper was so valuable because it showed not only that we were good guys, but when you see uh, one of these Iraqi guys putting a, a power drill into a you know the groin of a 14-year-old boy you begin to get a little moral clarity on this issue. So yes, I agree. It's pointless to have a military conflict if we don't know who we're fighting and 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 think that we des- not only think that we can win, of course we can win. Do we deserve to win? And I, this uh, this answer is so self-evident to me. I just don't know how anybody can have a problem with it, but the left the le- the definition of the left today is a self-hating death cult. 
it's basically this oikophobic kind of thing where it's cool to be the other, you know, mom is a, you know, is a housewife and dad's an insurance salesman. And, you know, and, you know, and now I'm voting for, I'm rooting for ISIS and I'm talking about the moral ambiguity because it shows how morally advanced I am and how intellectually sophisticated I am. I'm so far beyond the rest of you knuckle dragging rubes that I'm actually rooting for the other side. You're a moral idiot. There's something wrong with you. You're broken. You're broken. And the, well, one the, thing the, 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 uh, the pinnacle of medical knowledge is not to refuse to differentiate between health and disease anymore. That's not that's, what you're aiming exactly, at when you try to become exactly. a doctor. You should be even better at doing that. The people who put themselves forward as moral authorities should have the greatest clarity yeah, and the greatest right. moral hostility to egregiously evil actions. Which is the great, which is the great way to argue this whole um, uh, Muslim thing with, with progressives. It's like, why do you hate women and homosexuals so much, Mr. Progressive. Why do you hate them so much? I'm trying to fight a movement that is gaining power throughout the world where homosexuals are either hung from construction cranes or pushed off of buildings or crushed under walls, and women have their genitals mutilated and their and their former lawyers and, and doctors are put in a black sack and not allowed to leave the house. I'm fighting against that ideology, and you're defending it. Why do you hate these people so much? What do you have against women? What do you have against homosexuals, Mr. Progressive Enlightened Guy? you got to kick the moral superiority right out from underneath them because they got nothing else left. And that's the kind of thing you have to be doing, I think. And I've also, you know, since becoming a father, I think it's really impacted me, Bill, the degree to which moral courage is really reinforced by concern for your children's welfare. Yeah, you bet. You know, it, because if you don't have kids, you know, there was this argument put back a while ago by about uh, Keynes, the economist who mm -hmm. created this whole, you know, let's just spend ourselves out of recessions and, and all that. Um, and, and people would always say, but in the long run, and he said, well, in the long run, we'll all be dead. Now, he was gay. And he didn't have any kids, obviously. So there was an argument put forward, which, of course, everybody screamed hysterically about. But I think that there is sort of a great chain of being. And when you have kids, you really get a sense that you're not just somebody who's, whose life is for his or her own pleasure. But yeah. you, you, you receive a torch. You're a relay race. You receive a torch from your ancestors. You pass a torch onwards Correct. to your descendants. And I think the childlessness that is so prevalent in um, white Western Europeans and the descendants, with the exception to some degree of America, I think that has taken this kind of narcissistic hedonism to, like, why would you bother getting involved in the fight? It's not going to get that bad while you're still alive. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And they don't want to, you know, it's like we talked about last time, conservatives would rather worry now and feel safe later, and liberals would rather feel safe now and worry later. Um, hopefully they'll be dead by the time to worry. And and of all the tragic things you hear about the um, the Islamization of Europe, it's these old pensioners who've, you know, fought in World War II saying, I'm glad I won't be alive to see the end of this. You know, I mean, that's, what does that say? Um, you're, no, you're absolutely right. And and it also affects things like uh, the hard work. You're, you're, you're willing just to work hard. I mean, look, if the government is giving out all these benefits, most people will take them because they'd rather not work than work. And, and once again, we're back to the philosophical argument, right? We're back to the actual philosophical argument. Hard work is the foundation of civilization. It's what separates us from these savages, you know, and, and, and not just, I mean, these Muslim terrorists, what, 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 did the, what did the army of people, or what did the guys in the Banlieus in Paris, right? The, the guys in the ghettos in, in Paris, how many hours of work do they do a day? And the answer is none. They do zero. They just sit around and get more and more angry, more and more dependent, more and more radicalized. And... If hard work is what makes civilization and hard work is dependent on passing on something to your to your kids. And one of the great horrors of America today is it looks like this is going to be the first generation who's going to be worse off than their parents. And for parents, that's 
a personal issue now. It's not a philosophical or a political issue. Okay, so I'd like to talk about welfare because this is one of the things that in the media as a whole doesn't seem to be talked about very much. And I was thinking about that this morning before our chat. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, what is it like? I grew up in a pretty rough section of town, a pretty, but I, you know, been, been quite successful, I guess you could say, in life. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, okay, well, what what sort of put me on the straight and narrow? And I thought, well, you know, I got my first job when I was 10. I worked in a bookstore when I was 11. I cleaned offices. I was a waiter. Uh, I, you know, I founded my own company. Like, I've been a hardworking guy. And one of the things about working in the free market is you really can't be that screwed up because then you alienate your customers and nobody wants to work That's with you and right. you get fired. And if you need the job, which I did, mm. if you need the job, then you've really got to conform to some not unreasonable <laughs> standards of behavior, like provide quality and value to people who, who are paying your paycheck. And I'm sort of, you know, people say, oh, in America is a nation of immigrants. And that's true. It's a nation of immigrants when the great conforming principle was the need to participate in the economic life of the nation. To provide value to customers means categorically you got to learn the language. And I was thinking, OK, well, imagine if I was 20, like and I, I moved to Japan with no savings and I refused to learn Japanese. What, what and try to happen? turn it into America. What would you? What would? What would you think? It wouldn't would happen. The so be? the integration aspect. I think there's this giant moat I referred to in a recent show. It's this giant moat around the um, the Muslim immigrants, where there are not. There's no incentive for them to learn the local language. They're living a lot better uh, in welfare under welfare than they were. Uh, in in their former countries, if they're getting, and it's not inconceivable that for a family of four, you're getting fifty thousand dollars worth of benefits from the welfare state every year. Well, that's a million dollars invested at five percent. They just you just made these people effective, trustafarian millionaires. That's and so, right. what incentive do they have to integrate into the major society? And when they don't integrate into the major society, they don't get jobs, they don't learn English, they're no longer invested in the success of that mainstream society. Because if you've taken the time to to learn English and or to learn French, I guess, in the case of, of the, um, the Muslims in France, and mm -hmm. to get jobs then you're invested in the success of French civilization because you've learned the language, you've integrated into the economy. Plus, you also go out of your ghetto and interact with French people on a regular basis. If you work in a shoe store, you're selling to French people, you're speaking their language, you're, you yeah. know, hands across the water, you're bridging over the divides. And I think that aspect of integration is something that no longer happens. And you create these cysts, these biodomes of retrogression mm -hmm. that's, that's where, where people are even more primitive than the Middle East. Now, if you left the Middle East 15 years ago, the Middle East has changed in the last 15 years, but your little bubble of medievalism hasn't. And I think that is one of the fundamental issues that, that this welfare state is creating. You can have multiculturalism or you can have the welfare state. I simply can't see how you can have both. Well, I don't, know if, I don't think multiculturalism has ever worked anywhere. Uh, I think the, the, if, you, if you go with the, either the salad or the mosaic model of multiculturalism with all these different cultures living together versus the melting pot, America's great success has been the melting pot. And the, the, the difference between the melting pot and multiculturalism is you do bring your flavor with you, but you don't keep the flavor alone. It, it gets added to the mix, gets added to, the, to right. the pot. You're just throwing different elements into the pot, and it's a melting pot. And so America has a culture, and the culture is composed of – we're Americans – that's why I hate the term African American so much. And nobody says you're an Irish American. Nobody refers to you as a German American. Nobody refers to you as you know. It's just you're just an American. This idea that these people would give up their former identities, give up most of their savings or all of them, get on a boat to go someplace they've never been before, just in, except in their imagination, and become. This is a term I use a lot, and it, it, it's so important. When you when an immigrant comes to America for the right reasons, he's been trying to get here, comes here legally. He, 
he or she is willing to become a new person. And, and they're all new people here. Once they raise their hand and take the, the oath, they're new people. They may be of Polish extraction or, or Chinese extraction, but they're new people. They're not Chinese anymore. They're Americans now. And this has gone away. It's one of the problems with the Mexican Im uh, immigration issues, and it's certainly one of the problems with the Islamic issues. Now, it's got to do with population density. If you're a Muslim family living in Dubuque, Iowa, let's say, right, you may have a mosque, but if you're a half a percent of the population, you're going to play ball by Western rules. When you get to these, uh, I, I hope I get that pronunciation, I want to say it's Hamteric that, that, that uh, just recently, first time ever selected a um, Muslim-majority community. You look at that that community in, in Michigan, it's a Detroit suburb, you see burqas on the street, you hear the call for prayers five times a day from speakers, you see, you see them openly boasting that it's over for the Polish, this is our neighborhood now. It's colonization. And, and so it is a question of the numbers. And again and again and again and again and again, it's got to be a question of who's telling the better story. I don't know what it is about, about the, the number, but it seems like it's somewhere around... Five to ten percent when when they start making these demands, and when the West gives in, and just a simple little example, as you certainly have seen these pictures in Paris of the Muslims praying in the streets, and they simply block traffic five times a day. They get out in the streets and they do their prayers on the streets, and everybody has to stop. That's not a joke. It's not a game, and it's not an overflow of the mosque. It is a test of the resolve of the host country, and if the host country just keeps backing up, who wouldn't side with these? with these radicals who wouldn't believe that the future belongs to them. And I, I can't, I can't help but going back to the issue with the media. Uh, and I the got media off the welfare a, state thing, by no, the way. No, no, that's, 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 I think, I think we made that's our really case. the issue. There yeah. wouldn't be, there would not be this Islamic um, invasion of Europe without the fact that the anchors of all this was their need for this socialist welfare state they weren't willing to work and they weren't willing to have children, so they imported workers to work for them so they could have all these benefits. And same in Sweden and all the rest. And now they're paying the price for it. And if they try to cut the welfare state. Oh, then, the, um, then, there's, now, the, then there's going to be riots. And by the way, we have that problem here, too. Right. It's got nothing to do with Islam. We have the same kind of banlieues that, that they have in Paris. We have inner cities that are absolutely toxic, violent, enraged, bitter, racist uh, and and basically Look, Black Lives Matter is is the essay of the Democratic Party. It's the street muscle. It's the threat. It's the threat. You keep these things coming and we'll be quiet. And if you don't, then everything's going to burn. And when you keep backing up in the face of intimidation, the intimidation only gets worse. You know, you pay the gain, the Dane Geld and the, the Dane keeps coming. Right. So we have the exact same problem here with these same kind of communities. They're they're unemployable unemployed and unemployable. They've been on assistance their entire lives. They've never had to work before. I never really considered the point that you make. It's such a good point. The thing about doing a job, especially a job you hate, is it beats the narcissism out of you, right? It, it does. Just, and it beats the laziness out of you. It because does. now you have to get up every morning at 7.30 to be at work at 9, and you have to go and do things you don't want to do, and you have to meet people you wouldn't meet otherwise, and it disciplines you into a civility, which is the basis of civilization. Yeah, and uh, I was thinking, I just did a, a video on uh, the, the Missouri situation where mm, this, yeah. Um, yeah. And, no, and let's, I, go, let's go there, definitely. Okay, okay. Well, let me get your thoughts on the Missouri situation because people on this channel have certainly heard mine and I want to tie it sort of back into the media as a whole and Donald Trump because 
I just like throwing random things together and <laughs> seeing if they fit. But uh, give me give me your thoughts on what's happened in Missouri recently. The this is the result of I think two dynamics at work. The first dynamic, and clearly the primary dynamic, is this is what happens when everybody gets a a, a trophy. This is what happened when every when every kid is the smartest kid in the class. This is what happens when you're not allowed to lose a baseball game because we're not going to keep score. You know, the whole purpose of, of childhood and play is to determine uh, how how well you're going to do in the world, but mostly to get you okay with failure. You know, you, you, you fail in play. You fail when you play kickball. You fail when you play Little League baseball. You fail. And I think, having – I've told the story a thousand times, but I joined Little League baseball when I was 10 – and we were 0-10. We lost every game. And that wasn't fun at all, you know. But I survived it. And I think learning how to fail in a Little League baseball game is less traumatic than learning how to fail at never getting a job or not being able to finish a term paper or do your laundry the rest of it. The next year, we went 10-0. and 0. Uh, You know, I think it's because I moved to first base from right field, but I'm not going to – that's not a causal relationship. It may just be a correlation without a cause. But nevertheless – that first win after a, a season of defeats felt really good and winning again felt really good. So, so basically what you got, Stefan, is you've got people who've never, ever, ever had to fail, who've never had to be inconvenienced. They've, they've had 24-hour food, 24-hour entertainment. They've had you – know, mom drives them everywhere. They're 22 years old. And, and you can't fail even in school. I mean you've got social promotion yeah, because course. the government wants to cover up how terrible the schools are. So they just keep pushing people Correct. forward to hit their numbers and get their bonuses. Yeah. I don't think you can even fail. Like that when I was a kid, it's no, like you do not. a homework because you don't want to be left behind and be like the, the, the six-foot-tall guy in, in grade eight. You know? yeah. <laughs> I mean that's okay. not public, good. Public education is the only business in, in, the, in the country where it's a matter of how many boxes go out the door. And it doesn't matter if the product inside the box is in, intact, whether the product is broken or whether there's even any product in there at all, as long as the boxes are coming out in the right number. And not to turn this whole thing to arcade, but basically what's happening is these kids have no amygdala response. Since they've never been threatened with little things, since they've never had to deal with small threats, the idea of a big threat is unknown to them. Um, if you have never, ever been criticized, if you've never been uh, argued with, if you've never been yelled at, if you've never failed, if you've never had to do something like you said in a job that you didn't want to do, then you are so protected that you read something that William Shakespeare wrote and, you, you know, you have a little panic attack. And by the way, by the way, this whole safe spaces and microaggressions, this, these people are not. It's just neurotic acting out. It is simply it's a it's a cry for attention. It's it's this unearned moral superiority. I read something that that I found very offensive and 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 I think that I need to be protected against it. And me, 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 me. Look at me, look at me, look at me. This is what happens when you don't have genuine merit, right? When there's no one allowed to be good, no one's allowed to be bad, everybody gets a participant trophy. The only way you can get attention is not by succeeding anymore. It's by making enough noise and calling enough attention to your moral superiority. It's it's the it's the tyranny of the who can whine the loudest. Look at me. I'm on the top of the pyramid. I am not only a feminist and a Palestinian, but I'm a feminist lesbian Palestinian. And you, just as a regular feminist Palestinian, can't possibly connect to me. Aha! But I'm a lesbian transgendered Palestinian feminist. And that means that you are below me in the giant pecking order of things. And so what you really get, Stefan, is what's really driving this is it, it's, it's an odd sort of thing. But it is just the kind of competition that human beings ex, you know, engage in since the beginning. And instead of competing economically to see who can be the most successful or trying to be the best in your business, the competition, the game now is rules are structured. So the winner is the person who gets the most attention by making the most noise about the most nuanced moral affront to themselves. 
they're the people that win and they get the attention. And by the way, it is about attention because of all the repulsive things about the Mizzou thing. The most repulsive by a wide margin was this idea that when the Paris attack happens, they're saying, this is really screwed up. They're taking away our attention. Yeah, it's true. A bunch of people got gunned down, but but we've got people who are afraid to leave their dorm rooms. So they're exactly the same thing. How come everybody's looking at Paris all of a sudden? Spare me. Spare me. Well, it's, I think, also, not to put too fine a point at it, it's, a, it's lowering the standards for college to the point where idiots get in. Yeah. Uh, no, no, you know, college, when I was younger, college was, okay, you work really hard, and if you're smart enough and you work really hard enough, then you, you get into college. And then when I did a graduate degree, it was even tougher and all that. But there's this weird thing. It's like, well, college is where smart people are. So if we put more people in college, they'll be made smarter, which is sort of like saying, well... Tall people are on basketball teams, so if you put short people on basketball <laughs> teams, they'll magically get taller. That's, that's it. That's how we increase, increase the average height of the population is by making everybody play basketball. That's exactly. awesome. That's an awesome analogy. It's absolutely spot on. I'm going to steal that, and I'll credit you. Because, it's, it's um, brilliant. Yeah, because, because one of the reasons why it takes some intelligence and the deferral – and intelligence and the deferral of gratification kind of go hand in hand, which is why civilization, which is basically the deferral of gratification and Correct. intelligence That's go hand in hand. That's all it is. Hand. Yeah, so, so in order to have free speech – you say, well, someone that, something that someone else says is deeply offensive to me, which, you know, if you're conservative or libertarian or whatever, is mostly just reading the paper is a triggering event because it's all full of such nonsense. But you say, well, I'm going to put up with this because I, down the road, I don't want someone able to use the same weapons I'm inventing against them exactly. against me. Like if I draw a gun and he draws a gun, it's not a good situation, so I'll keep my gun in my holster and free speech rules. But it takes a certain amount of intelligence to, to understand that, to look over the horizon and say, well, yeah, I'm going to deal with speech I find offensive because I sure as heck don't want other people finding my speech offensive and using the same censorship tools against me. But these people have seemed to have no idea of that. And I assume it's partly just because they're stuffing the pipe in college and just letting uh, every uh, idiot into college. And this is the natural result that you have people who can't defer gratification, who can't recognize the long term boomerang effect of their semi fascistic policies, and who also can't figure out that if you turn something like the University of Missouri into some political self castrating anti white hotbed of radical idiocy, then your, your entire degree is going to be worth absolutely nothing. That's and right. you've ruined an entire institution for generations right. to come. That's right. When when Yale, what was it with Yale? Um, they was it a safe space issue with Yale? I forget what it was. It was Yale and something where the, Halloween costumes. If that's I it. Right that's me. right. That's what it is. So when that's the reputation of Yale, then now that's the reputation of Yale. And you would think that the the trustees of Yale would have some interest in protecting this, but no, that's what Yale is now. Yale is a home for little whiny crybabies. Um, you know this. What were you just you were just talking about? I just lost the thread. I was thinking about the Yale thing. Um, oh, we were just talking about how you you by not deferring the gratification and by acting on your re responsiveness, you destroy the value of the entire institution and blow up the value of your entire education. I mean, the, the fact that they can't see this, I can't even understand how people could not see that. Maybe it's an RK thing. I don't know. Yeah, but. Well, the this. This generation is in real trouble, and of all the things I worry about, you know, we have we have this enormous debt problem, we have this Islam problem, we have uh, we have all kinds of huge problems, and the incapability of this generation is just astonishing to me, and how coddled they are. And look, eventually their parents are going to die. Eventually they're going to die, and and then they'll all, you know, this is all the, the reason they're giving benefits is because the government, the the primarily the progressives understand that if people are dependent on them, then they get the power. 
That's how it is. It's a power game. So, you know, Barack Obama could never Barack Obama, if Barack Obama were not in politics, that guy could not afford a private jet. He could not afford to go golfing around the, the world. But, you know, the, the guy the, the guy couldn't, he not only can't run Walmart, he couldn't run a single Walmart. He'd but, get a lot of return on his used cars. That's my sort of feeling. Yeah. So so what he'll do is he will, he and Hillary and all the rest, of them, a lot of Republicans too, will make this deal. We'll give you stuff in exchange for power and then I'll get all the power and all the money I want and you don't have to worry about anything because security is a very powerful motivator and it's all just a question of habits. It's all hard work is a habit. And and like you, I started when I was um, fourteen. I remember the story I wanted to tell real quick. You were talking about um, about this idea of, of of where does this kind of discipline come from and and um, freedom of speech. And this is a profound memory for me. My dad joined the army. He was one of those guys lied about his age to get in the army. He got to Germany about a week before the war ended. He's a second lieutenant and intelligence officer over there. And so when I was a kid, I used to draw pictures of, you know, American planes shooting down Nazi planes and draw the stars on our wings and draw the swastikas on, on their wings. And I just, I don't know, I was like six or something. And I just thought the swastika was an interesting looking design. So I drew one on my hand in, with pen. And that was the only time I've ever seen my dad go all the way angry. He just lost, but lost his mind. And, and my mom kind of had to intervene because he really, you know, he was like, he was so primally furious and he was he was explaining to me look i uh, half of my friends gave their lives i was willing to give my life to stamp that off the face of the earth and 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 after a second you know i mean he realized i'm just a kid you know so just it's i thought it was like a you know cartoon drawing but here's the point i'm trying to make it was a couple years later when they were doing the um the nazi rallies in whatever that town was i forget where it was the nazis were marching and they tried to stop them and then they said, no, they got to march. They got to have the right to, to have the rally. And my dad told me, he said, I said, well, dad, you know, we got to shut this down. Or he said, no, uh, we can't shut it down. I said, well, you fought these guys. You gave me all this you know, grief about the Nazis. He said, yeah, but then who decides? Who decides? If somebody gets to decide, then, then that's what we fought against. Right. And I remember that was such a profound thing after that visceral reaction he had to the swastika, the idea that this man would have the moral clarity to say, this is the ideology that I that that caused this visceral reaction in me. And I'm going to allow it to walk down the streets of the country that I defended. Because the alternative is worse, because if somebody says not you, but you, then it's just a question of who gets into power, right? And we all know how the progressives feel about that. That's why they want to shut all this stuff down, the whole safe space thing, the whole the whole Black Lives Matter, whole political correctness. Pro- political correctness is just here to make you shut up. Yeah. I mean, I did a video on Bernie Sanders where I, you know, because all the people who are socialists or leftists or, I don't know, the Democrats who think he can win, they want to give him all this power. And my point is, okay, well, maybe you like him, but what, what about your worst enemy having that power? Because you can't guarantee that that power in the future is only going to be used by people whose policies you approve of. Think of the worst person you can think of in the world getting hold of the power you want to give to Bernie Sanders. And that's why you don't give the power to Bernie Sanders, because you can't guarantee. But that's that's looking over the horizon. That's forward thinking. That's exactly what you're talking about a minute ago. That's like not eating your seed crop because you've got to have something to plant in the spring. right. We're hungry. It's a hungry winter. And here's a giant sack of corn that we can eat right now. And we're, we're, we're damn near starving. But if we eat this now, we are going to starve for sure next year. And that's the discipline that is being bled out of the society faster than you could say Jack Robinson. And I could say Jack Robinson pretty quickly. And it's, it's just, it's appalling. And it's not irreversible. But 
I, yeah, and look, it, you, we have these conversations and it's same, it seems so dark. I mean, it just really is almost like, you know, it's almost like end times. These are the last conversations before the lights go out. However, however, there are, there are two things I notice that are really important. One of them is I think people are really changing. I mean, I think people have had enough of political correctness. I know they've had enough of Islam. I mean, it's not even like it was a year ago. And it's much, much, much more saturated than it was on 9-11. On 9-11... We, most people didn't even know anything about these Muslims. We were told, you know, there's people, you know, yeah, okay, sure, for sure. And, and then Europe let all these people in. Didn't much like what we saw because in Europe, these people have behaved atrociously, generally, the radicals. So I think people have had enough of this, and I think, I think they want to change. They've had enough of political correctness. They've certainly had enough of Washington. That's ex- the only way you can explain Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in the same country is because people have had enough of these politicians. So the good news is there is a, I think we're past peak political correctness. I think we're past the reaction to Mizzou has been universal scorn, right? So no one's given them any more rope. That's a good sign. But I think the fundamental difference, and this is the only hope we have between this cycle of civilization and all the others is this is the first time in human history because of technology where the common people have a chance to talk to each other like we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. If all we ever got was our worldview from, from Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or Jeb Bush for that matter or whatever, we would just be doomed. But the fact that that the common, you know, we're what are we really, right? We're we're peasant we're peasant soldiers from Rome, right? We're the people that work the fields, and then and then when we get called up, we join the legions, and we're the people that made the republic. Common people, hardworking people. They've always been. They've always been the last to go when civilization go. The civilization rots from the top down. It's always the elites that get bored, and they have this death wish, and then you know, they, and off they go. So for the first time ever, you know, the the common people who are ready to defend the civilization have a chance to talk to each other, organize, encourage each other. And it's not a guarantee, but it is a break. It's a it is a break in the cycle, I think, that we need to exploit hard. Absolutely. And, and when we talk about the challenges that we face, I mean, compared to other challenges throughout human history, the Black Death, the last Muslim invasion, the First and Second World Wars, uh, yep. a communism armed with nuclear weapons, uh, poised on the brink of... This is not that bad. I mean, and, no, and the fact no, is, of not. course, that we do have this incredible no-gatekeeper. The fact that, that, you know, I've got over 70 million views on YouTube, you've got your millions of views. This is stuff that would never have existed otherwise. There's simply no chance that I ever would have got a job in the mainstream media. Precisely. But I mean, think about what's going on right now. We're having a great conversation. And in any time prior to like, say, 10 years ago or something, you and I might have had this conversation if we were friends and we'd met. We never would have met, first of all, without the internet. But we could have had this conversation over dinner. And if there were two or three other people there, they would have said, oh, I really learned something. Now, hundreds of thousands of people are going to hear this and and these arguments are going to be ammoed up to people that's the one thing i get all the time i'm sure it is for you too the 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 most of the comments i get are thank you for for putting into words and into arguments things that i've always felt now i can go to the, the water cooler and i've got a little ammunition i can i can push back but you know when i think when you really get down to it uh, Stefan, the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate thing is i said is I, I really do believe we're past peak political correctness and 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 tolerance and all that stuff so now we are truly in the world of the emperor's new clothes. What we've got is we've got a, a, a pop culture and a media and a, and a political class, all three. So the information news networks, the pop culture media in terms of movies and TV and the political class are all progressives. And they're pushing this down on the American people and the American people don't like it. And so that's a tremendous opportunity. And since they don't like it, I think we took 
30 years for us to find out we don't like it because it just doesn't go anywhere and it eats itself. But since they don't like it, now it is genuinely the emperor's new clothes moment where I don't think the problem now is convincing the American people that these are bad paths. I think somebody just needs to come up and say it. You know, you just need to say things. That's what it is. That's the answer to political correctness is you just have to be fearless enough as you are and as I try to be to just say it. Why didn't Barack Obama get impeached over all this stuff? Because he's black. Any other questions I can answer for you? What? Why is Hillary Clinton walking free when she's obviously when she's obviously broken the law? Because the because the the media class sees her as a political ally and the the, the news media is now the audiovisual department of the Democratic Party. Next question. And when you get to this level, why do you why do you oppose Islam? I'm, I'm opposed to Islam because they murder homosexuals and, and they and they put women in sacks. Why aren't you opposed to Islam? Now we're talking about a world where poof, because the great the great. This is all social proof, right? Social proof. I just did take a quick detour because I think this is a really good thing to maybe wrap on. You were talking earlier about moral courage, and I, I feel uh, there's a lot of authors I've read, obviously, but I feel like Sam Clemens is a personal friend of, my, friend of mine. I mean, uh, I think Mark Twain wrote in such a way that makes me feel like he's my friend. I feel like I've, I lost a friend. Twain was talking about a, a lynching in Missouri, which was his home state, ironically enough, and um, and he, he was talking about moral courage, and he said uh, that you can find – of 100 people, you can find 30 people with physical courage, but moral courage, doing what is opposite to the crowd, is almost unheard of. He talked about a case of a couple of either sheriffs or Texas Rangers where there would be a mob with, you know, three black people in tow and they're going to lynch him. And he said if there's 100 people in that mob, there's probably three people that actually want to kill this guy. But nobody else wants to be seen as, you know, as, you know, being friendly. To this. So so he said the moral courage of one man unarmed to stand in the middle of the street and say, if you're going to kill that man, you're going to have to kill me first. And that just – the mob just disperses. So the, an analogy I like to use is if you, are, if you are outside a building and there's a building on fire and you can hear screams from the inside, you have 100 people on the street. If nobody's going in, people will stand there and watch the building burn. When the one person with the moral courage to break away from the crowd goes in, 30 people will be right behind them. They've got the physical courage. So what it really requires now is the moral courage to just suffer the slings and arrows and to basically say, look, you called me a racist no matter what. I criticize his economic policies. You call me a racist. I don't care. I'm just going to say it. And then then the tide can turn very, very quickly because the great thing about the, the emperor's new clothes is that little boy didn't have to go down the line and convince every single person, right, that, that, that he's naked. He just has to say he's naked. He's not wearing anything. And, and the social proof disappears and Everything switches like that. Yeah, and I, I've argued for a, a long time that to call somebody a racist without clear proof is about the most racist act that you can imagine. That the, the people who use the term racist without obvious proof are, are the racists, and you've got to just push back on that because. And, and there's a, um, there's an even better point about that, and that is, you know, the, I, I've been saying this for a long time. The charge of being a racist, the the accusation of racism, only works against people who aren't racist. That's the only way it works. If, if I were to accuse you of being a racist and you're, a, and you're wearing a white hood, right? Yeah. I go to a Ku Klux Klan rally and I say, you know, I've been listening to you guys for like an hour now and, and, and I find your attitude towards black people very disturbing. He would say, do you not see the burning cross? Yeah. Do you not see the white we're, hood? We're pro-white, yes. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's Hitler, the uh, Adolf Hitler, I, I've read your book. I find it somewhat anti-Semitic. Uh, you see the armband here? We're killing people industrially here. Of course we hate the Jews. Racists are proud of being racist. Racist, that's their identity. And 
the only people who shut up when they're being called a racist are people who aren't racist because it's so repulsive and, and to them that they simply will shut up before they'll be accused of something that vile. It's a very good point. It's a very good point. All right. Um, last thing I wanted to mention was um, with Donald Trump. Mm. He's kind of a litmus test for me for a lot of the people in my life. I got to tell you, you know, he's, he's just one of these guys who comes along who's like a lightning rod to find out what people are like. To me, he's kind of an RK filter. I just <laughs> wanted to point this out. Um, but one of the things I really, really like about Donald Trump is his um, indifference to media attacks. I mean, he's better at the media than most people in the media are. He's Without certainly more experienced and so on. And the fact that he's willing, I think he's one of these guys who shows that the media is a paper tiger, that they can only hurt you if you let them hurt you. In other words, the criticisms of you can only hurt you if you agree with them at some level. Correct. And I think that that his candidacy, no matter what happens to it politically, is one great opportunity for people to realize the paper tiger of the liberal media is not something to be scared of. The lies that they can spread about you are not something to be scared of and that you can really reach past them. They seem like this big wall that you can walk right through and get to the people. And I just really wanted to make that point because some people are kind of confused about my approach to Donald Trump. But the fact that he's a giant battering ram against the fantasy castle of the media of media power, I just find incredibly enlightening because I think that when we can talk to each other without the left wing screeching, uh, of the largely Democrat media, I think will make progress in leaps and bounds. And he really is like a colossus striding his way through that delusion and, and creating a path for us all to follow. Yeah. And let's not forget, by the way, I, I, this point needs to be made all the time. I try to make it as often as I can. The left owns the media, the left owns the pop culture, and the left owns politics. And it's still a 50-50 country. It's not like we have to do everything right. We have to do a few things right. They're doing everything right, and they're at 50%, you know, 51%, 52%. They're doing everything. They got the windows all papered over. So to the degree that Donald Trump lets some sunlight into this thing, I, I couldn't agree more. And and I think my favorite Donald Trump moment is that probably the simplest one where somebody asked him some kind of a baiting question. He says, where are you from? And she said, CNN. And he goes, CNN. Just like that, right? CNN, done. It's like, we're CNN. Nah, you're nothing to me. You're, you're, you're just a bunch of biased, uh, you know, socialists. That is his great strength. Speaking about him as a candidate, uh, I'm very concerned about him. And the main reason I'm, I have such reservations about him is his inability to control his own mouth regarding people who are on his team. You know, he says things about fellow Republicans. I understand it's a fight for the nomination, but I mean, some of this stuff is just it's just shocking to me. And it and it indicates a level of narcissism that I'd kind of like to see out of politics at this point. You know, I mean, I think there's no question Barack Obama is a pathological narcissist. I think there's no question Hillary Clinton is a pathological narcissist. And I'm quite concerned that Donald Trump is, too. Now, listen, I just want to be as clear about this as I can be. If it comes down to our narcissist or their narcissist, I know which side I'm on. Uh, this guy understands business. He understands the economy. He wants to defend America. There's a great deal about him that I like very much. As I said in one of my afterburners, I'll vote for the hat, you know. If he's got a hat on that says make America oh, make great America, again, right. yeah, I'll, I'll vote for the hat. That's good enough for me against Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. I'm all in. Fine. But and if he's the nominee, he'll have my full support. But I am concerned about uh, about qualities of his character that seem to be. Clinton is a Clintonista. That's all. She's not a Democrat. She's a Clintonist. And I think Trump is a Trumpian. I think Donald Trump's moral and and uh, and sort of philosophical compass is Donald Trump. Uh, he's you know he. he there's an awful lot about Donald Trump that's not very conservative. This concerns me. But look, 
we're in an age now where if it's it's the big businessman versus the big communist or the felon, sign me up, you know, sign me up. And it would be it would be wonderful to see him striding through the media for four years. Again, whether we agree with his policies or not, he will certainly um, reveal the media to be far less powerful than it seems to be, at least when there's a Democrat in power. If Donald Trump, if all Donald Trump ends up doing is is having ruined the candidacy of Jeb Bush, then a, a gold medal should be struck <laughs> in his honor. Uh, you know, uh, the Bush campaign would rather see Hillary Clinton president than than uh, Ted Cruz president. There's no question about it. So this insider politics is over for the time being. And it, and and it's a level, as we said before, it's a level of disgust on the part of the American people that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, who are so diametrically opposed to each other, are the only people that are generating real enthusiasm because people have had enough of this. And, you know, that brings up an interesting point. And the question is, can you connect the far left and the far right? Well, when I say far right, you know, that term's been so badly used. Individualists. Somewhere in the world of libertarianism, you can move an enormous amount of people who would formally identify as progressives. You know, they think they're about freedom and they think they're about choice and stuff. They're not. They're, you've got to point out to them they're about the big state. I think the argument I'm going to be swinging this year, I'm going to swing it everywhere I get, is it's going to be the Uber argument, right? I mean, Uber is it. Bernie Sanders is against Uber and Hillary Clinton is against Uber. You go up to a young person and say, Bernie and Hillary both hate Uber. No, they don't. Yes, they do. Here are the quotes. Well, why do they hate Uber? Well, I'll tell you why they hate Uber. They hate Uber because I need a ride and you've got a car and I give you money and you give me a ride. Why do they hate this? They hate this because they don't get a piece of it. That's why they hate it. Well, Hillary Clinton wouldn't get money from this. No, but the unions that pay for their campaigns do. And so that's why they're going to use the law to make Uber either uh, illegal. You know, there was a protest. It's almost unbelievable. But there was a protest where union taxi drivers were calling for a law, a law that said that Uber had to wait five minutes on the clock before responding to a call because it was out-competing them so badly it just wasn't fair. And when you go to young people and say, the Democrats are the party of making you wait an additional five minutes so that these worthless taxi guys have a chance, We're, this is the free market, right? It's not this big government stuff. We don't like big government. We don't like big businesses, really. If, if, if a guy's got a car and you need a ride, this is what we're talking about. And this ability for people to communicate peer-to-peer -peer using the Internet and smartphones, B2B, all this other stuff. It's incredibly conservative when you get right down to it. There's no government involved. That's why it works so bloody well. Well, also, you can say to the uh, to the Democrats uh, how good Uber is for carbon emissions, because it means that fewer people need to buy cars. Like I've always said, if you really care about the environment, then you want to make sure that taxis are not licensed, uh, because that way the cost of a taxi will go way down and fewer people will need to buy cars. But that usually makes their heads explode. So, yeah, that's all right. right. Let's close it off. Uh, obviously, I feel we could chat all day, but um, I really want to point out uh, BillWhittle.com is where you can go for Bill's uh, stuff. Do you have anything exciting coming up uh, in the short term that people should keep their eyes peeled for? Yeah, we're going to um, – it looks like we're going to be bringing back the firewall videos. They were previously sponsored by Truth Revolt, but I think at this point we're going to just going to find a way to just pull together as hard as we can and bring them back because it's, you know, we got a, a year to stop these communists and felons and, and we want to swing everything we can. So – uh, there's that, and we're going to be doing a new members-only show called The Nexus Report, a three-time-a-week kind of five minutes just on what's happening. So uh, we're certainly looking for members. You know, we uh, the, the membership allows us to do the production, and uh, and if you go to BillWhittle.com, there's a little Become a Member thing up in the front. And if you can help us out, we sure need it because, as you probably know from watching Stefan's work, uh, time is short, and um, and this dynamic 
of what we're doing. You're you're not backed by giant uh, corporations, and I'm not either. Um, and and it is it is the essence of what democracy and Republican government is. This is individual citizens who feel compelled to do something. And if you're one of those people who feels the same way, certainly I know you could use their support and I could use it too. And All by right. the way, for, for my listeners, what can what can we do for you? I might bring three or four people over. <laughs> well, um, so yeah, freedomainradio.com. Uh, you can go to freedomainradio.com slash donate. If, if you want to help out, you can sign up pretty easily. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, you know, these these giant complicated sets, like this massive ping pong ball that I broadcast from, yeah, that's awesome. not easy to come by. I Are mean, you inside the ball or, or is it a giant ball behind you? <laughs> I'm inside the ball. Awesome. And that way I have to know when to run out of uh, shows because I'm running out of air. So that's, that's my timer. It's like behind you're a little canary in the, in the background. Yeah. And when the so when I feels start, like, you know, I'm with you, man. Going down like this. So thanks a lot, Bill. Always a great pleasure. I'm sure we can do it again soon. BillWhittle.com. And uh, have, have yourself a great day, everyone. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. It's a genuine physical pleasure to talk to somebody who, uh, who thinks exactly the same way I do. You know? <laughs> thanks, man. Take care, buddy. We'll see you.